You're probably familiar with the story in our gospel reading this morning. It's a story that, uh, that Jesus told. Now, Jesus was going around uh, preaching the good news that the kingdom of God had arrived with him. When a lawyer, who is, by the way, the hero of the story, asked, <laughs> asked Jesus a question, which is, of course, what lawyers do. And he asked Jesus a question because Jesus had been preaching that God's kingdom boils down to two rules. They were used to lots of rules. But it boiled into two rules. Love God and love your neighbor. So, the lawyer asked the question, Who is, who is my neighbor? What a great question. It's, a, it's the sort of question we're always asking. How much do I really have to do? What can I get away with? Where's the boundaries? Who do I not have to love? Who is my neighbor? I mean, we want our neighbors to be defined as family, friends, people we like, people like us, right? That's what we want our neighbor to be. It'd be like uh, if I came up to you and I said, you know, when I got married, I told Paula, for better or worse, what do you think worse means? (laughs) Jesus responds with a story. He said, there was once a man who was set upon by some thugs. They beat him up, shot him, and left him along the side of the road. Shortly thereafter, some guy comes by with a collar on. Picture Aubrey. Comes by, and he was afraid. This guy's laying there bleeding. I don't know what to do. So he goes on the other side and passes by. Shortly thereafter, there was a Levite, maybe a respected businessman who came by. He was in a hurry. He had a meeting to get to, so he walked on by. Then along came a Muslim man. I'm convinced if Jesus came to Harrisonburg today and told this story, that's what he would say. He wouldn't say Samaritan. That doesn't mean anything to us. He would say, along came a Muslim or maybe an undocumented immigrant. And he came by. What does it say about this Muslim man? He saw the man injured, and he had compassion on him. He came over to him, bandaged his wounds, took him to the hospital, filled out all those forms in the emergency room, signed what he needed to sign, and told them that he'd be back, and he would cover whatever insurance didn't pay. Jesus then asked the lawyer, which of these three proved to be, I think that's an interesting way to ask a lawyer, right? Which of these proved to be a neighbor to the wounded man? That is, which of these three is the person that the lawyer is required to love? It was the stranger, the Samaritan, the foreigner, the enemy, the person of a different religion. That's who Jesus told the lawyer he was required to love. Now, All three of these, the truth is, all three of these were neighbors to the wounded man. They all crossed paths with him. But there's no need for a command to love the people I like. We don't need to be told that. Love your neighbor isn't about loving people like me. Loving the people I like. It's about loving the people that are strangers, that are vulnerable, that are not like me. We're in the middle of a sermon series, um, actually a video series, our small groups are going through. And if you 
haven't watched any of them yet, there's ways you can catch up, talk to a small group leader. You can join a small group. Um, it's a, it's a, and, and our sermons here on Sunday morning are usually more expository than they have been through this series, um, especially you know, with me up here as opposed to Aubrey. Um, so um, the, sermon, the, the video series is, uh, discusses this question of what is our salvation for? Not what is our salvation against, but what is it for? It's for the life of the world. It's appropriate during this Easter season. What does Aubrey say every week? I'm going to read it here. The inalterable fact of Easter means that everything sad is going to come untrue. Everything is going to be made right. Through the cross and the resurrection, God has defeated evil and opened the door to a new creation. God asks us to respond to this by one, do you remember, have you memorized it yet? Believing that it's true. And two, joining him in his work of implementing that victory. Making everything sad come untrue. Putting everything to rights. So in this video series, have you all been enjoying it? I hope so. Um, in this video series, it's been helping us to see that we're living here as exiles. Uh, this is not our empire. This is not our kingdom. Yet we're living here. We're putting down roots. We're working for the good of the city and for the life of the world. Two weeks ago, we talked about family. Last week, if you recall, we talked about work. And this week, the topic is justice. Laboring for justice. How do we as Christians, as exiles in this world, labor for justice? Huge. Huge topic, right? No wonder Aubrey isn't here. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to tackle that question, okay? I'm going I'm to try to take a bite-sized chunk out of it. Um, something we can get our hands around, something that might challenge each of us, including me today. I'm not going to talk about justice in the world or justice among nations. Um, I'm going to bring it down, talk about laboring for justice in Harrisonburg with the story of the good Muslim in the background. What is justice? That word brings up also, it's, it's kind of a dangerous word, it brings up what punishment and getting what we deserve and um, judgment. Um, there's all sorts of things that that word can bring up, retribution. Looking at it more broadly, and this is the way the video is going to look at it, is justice is the right ordering of all things. Everything in its place. As, everything as it should be. When things get out of order, we have chaos, and we call that un- injustice. When we labor for justice in a broken world, we're trying to put broken things back in order. And if you think about it, laboring for justice in a community like Harrisonburg usually is talking about restoring broken relationships. Relationships among communities, relationship among people. When we're born, we have a sense of justice, right? I mean, you go to a playground, you sit there for a few minutes, you're going to hear, that's not fair, right? That's not right. Things are out of order. We have this sense that things are supposed to be in order. Um, There's a right order to things. It's so much easier to produce injustice than justice, to produce order. I'm sorry. It's so much easier to produce injustice than justice. I saw some of you were listening. Your eyes got big. So much easier to, to produce chaos than order. Um, think about, you know, a garden. Spent yesterday, beautiful day, out in the garden, planting my garden. It's going to take me all summer to 
weed and water and watch this stuff grow. And it would take three minutes for one of the cows to get into the garden to destroy it, right? Um, you think about a house, how long it takes to build a house and how much work and planning and money goes into building a house. And, you know, light a match and be gone in a couple hours. When I was young, my parents had... Um, this is just my perception, I guess, but just one thing of great value, and that was this orange lamp. It was one of these that had a globe and then a second globe up top, and it was kind of orangish, as I recall, flowers painted on it. And it was always in the center of the living room, and you couldn't go near the, the lamp. In fact, if I was running through the house, I would get yelled at because the lamp was shaking. Um, true story. <laughs> when I was three years old... Um, I pulled the cord and I pulled the lamp off and one of the globes broke. And it took my father several years of looking through shops to find something very similar. And he put this new globe on. And, and uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't quite the same color orange. Um, this is the 70s, by the way. It wasn't, it wasn't quite the same color orange and the flowers weren't quite the same, but they clearly came from the same artist. And it was fixed. But it wasn't quite fixed. And isn't that how laboring for justice is, particularly when it comes to relationships? I mean, we see this um, in the criminal justice system. You know, our society tries to seek justice by punishing people. So someone's killed, we then prosecute them, and we punish them. But the person's still gone. The family's still broken. We haven't really fixed the situation. And our system, I think, demonstrates that you... We, most of the time, can only approximate justice. We can only approximate getting things back um, into order. And, that's, and I think that's why there's so much of a yearning for justice and for God to really make things right one day. So how can we labor for justice in our community, for healing Harrisonburg's relationships, for loving our neighbors? And when I say Harrisonburg, I mean where you live, where you work, your neighborhoods, um, your school. So for some of you, that might be a different community than Harrisonburg, but that's what I'm going to be meaning when I, when I talk about Harrisonburg, in your case. What, what should we be thinking about when we think about laboring for justice in Harrisonburg, about right ordering of relationships in our communities, so in our community, so that our community can flourish? You know, when I think about living in a community like Harrisonburg, it's a great size because... And here's what's kind of strange to me. We cross paths with so many different people. Um, we share the space with them. Um, we share the community with them. And yet, there's, for most of us, there's no real relationship with those people. Our neighbors, people in our office buildings, um, people at Walmart. Um, but yet, we're in a community that's small enough that if you're around long enough, you'll recognize faces. Um, you know, Court Square, where I work, I, it, I have this window right on the square. And so I get to see Harrisonburg every day. And, well, and every day I also see cars going the wrong way as well, which is amazing. Um, and at least once every two weeks there's a tractor trailer. So um, it's amazing. But I see professionals. I see lawyers, accountants, businessmen, artists, JMU students, restaurant employees, shoppers, tourists. That's kind of fun. People coming with cameras, taking pictures. Um, government employees. Homeless people, people on their way to court, all milling about, crossing paths. And yet, 
never really noticing one another. Why is that? Why do we not notice one another? Why do we live our lives like the priest and the Levite and we just walk on by people right around us, on the street, in our work, in our neighborhood, in Court Square, people who are in need? I'm not talking about people we know and love, people we like, people we're in relationship with. I'm talking about the neighbors we share this community with that we don't know. We might recognize them. We might not. They might not be like us at all. But yet we share this community with them. The, the people, the neighbors that we pass by, some of them have needs we can see, like the guy in the ditch, right? Some people have needs we don't see. I think about the enormous problems that the people in Baltimore are facing right now. And um, um, as, as their community struggling with not just this one incident, but lifetimes of injustices, of relationships between entire sections of their community being out of order. Um, so many people on so many occasions being passed by while lying in the ditch along the side of the road. Why is it? Why is it we pass by? Our neighbors. I think there's a couple reasons. The first one I'm going to call out is busyness. Busyness. I remember, a lot of you remember back in the 70s, we were told that there was going to be this thing, this thing called a computer, that was going to come into our lives. And pretty soon they'd be in every home and every office. And you know what would happen? We'd have nothing to do. (laughs) Work week would go to four days, maybe even three days. We'd have nothing but leisure time. Hasn't quite worked out that way, has it? Um, we're so busy. We fill our lives with so many things. And not just, not just work, but play and commitments and music lessons and volleyball. And just all these things that are each good in themselves. But we're too busy. We don't have time to stop and help the guy in the ditch. How about fear? Fear. We live in this information age where we're being bombarded with information. Which in, in some senses is good. But we've got advertisers. We've got entertainment. We've got news. And they're all vying for our attention. And you know what they've discovered? Fear. That's how they get our attention. Is through fear. Um, you know, fear of injury, fear of death, fear we're going to lose our jobs, our homes, fear of the weather. You ever watch the Weather Channel? Fear of terrorism, fear of criminals, gangs, rapists, child molesters, fear of economic disaster, fear of liberals, fear of conservatives. It wasn't that long ago that we got our news for half hour twice an evening from three sources, right? And the newspaper in the morning. Now there's 24-hour news channels. There's internet news all needing us to watch them. I'm not saying news is a bad thing. But what that's produced in our culture is this idea that kids are being abducted today more than any time in the history of the world. And that's just not true. The fact is, in the last 20 years, crime has gone down. Did you know that? In the nation. We have less crime. In Harrisonburg, we have less crime. 
And yet we are convinced that things are more dangerous than ever. We lock up more people in our society today than any time in the history of the world. America. I mean, more than the gulags. More than Germany in the 1930s. We lock up, incarcerate more people than ever. It's out of fear. There's people waiting to steal your children. There's a kid wanting to gun you down in the street. There's terrorists. There's gangs in Harrisonburg fighting turf battles. And you might get caught in the crossfire. Now you believe that, right? When's that happened? We're being lied to. Lock your doors. Wear your helmets. Don't let your kids out of your sight. You know, it's amazing. We don't talk about liberty anymore. If you listen to public discourse, we talk about what? Safety and security. That's what we talk about because we're all afraid. You know, we've, we've given up so much of our freedom. This is a tangent, sorry. We've given up so much of our freedom to the war on drugs and the war on terror. We were totally changed from where we were 30 years ago. And it's all because of fear. All right, I'm get back to the sermon. Um, <laughs> busyness, fear keeps us from meeting our neighbors, helping others in our community, building relationships, rebuilding relationships, working together, working things out together. You know, and fear leads to labeling, labeling people. We have so many labels for people. And so many of our labels serve only to generalize our fear and dismiss people. Let me give you a few. Convicted felon. Undocumented immigrant. Sex offender. Muslim. Mentally ill. Homeless. White trash. These are labels we use that give us an excuse To not stop. It gives us an excuse to cross the road and walk by on the other side. And they're based in fear. How about this label? Person made in the image of God. Person that God loves so much he would die for them. Those are the labels we should be using as Christians when we look at in a Look at our neighbors. I had a client last week who was locked up. And he's the sort of person who should never be in jail. He's the sort of person who, like most of us in here, never expected to go to jail. But he's he's there. And uh, I always dread that first visit um, when somebody's been locked up unexpectedly. Because they're just so broken and sometimes I even wait a while just because it's it's so emotional I was shocked I went in and he came in smiling I said what's going on he said I can't believe it the people in here are so nice (laughs) he's like I've always thought people in jail were just pure evil he said you know what they did they welcomed me they kind of oriented me to you know how you how you get your stuff from commissary and, and somebody gave me a toothbrush because I didn't have one yet. And, um, he said, that, he said, they've been great. I can't believe it. Um, and that's, and that's true. Uh, most people down the street at the jail 
are just like us. They just got off to a bad start. They made some bad decisions. This whole idea of this insane criminal that you see in movies, you know, practicing law for 20 years, I maybe have had five of those. Um, um, But we label them. They're cons. They're criminals. They're felons. In our passage this morning, what does it say that the good Muslim did? He had compassion. Compassion for this person he didn't know, the person in the ditch. Recently read a study about, it, I don't know, for what it's worth. It's, it's interesting. It was talking about how it's difficult, we're wired, the way we're wired, it's difficult to feel compassion or empathy for strangers. And here's, what, here's the study. This was a guy named Jeff Mogul. He's scientist at McGill University in Canada. This is what he did. He, he, uh, the study was set up and so that he would put two people in a room, shut the door, and they both plunged their hands into a freezing bucket of ice water for 30 seconds. They then took their hands out of the water and gave a rating of the pain level and also gave a rating for the pain level that they thought the other person was experiencing. Each test subject did this three times. Once they did it in a room with a stranger. Once they did it in the room by themselves. And once they did it in a room with a friend. What they found was that if they were tested across from their friend, their pain was worse than if they were tested by themselves. I think it's, it's interesting because you would think that being with a friend would kind of help the pain, right? But that's not what happened. Over and over again, the people who tested with a friend, their pain, the experience was worse than if they tested by themselves. If they were in the room with a stranger, their pain was the same as if they tested by themselves. And what what they talked about in this study was uh, there's a form of empathy called emotional contagion. It's what happens between friends, not between strangers. You're... You experience more pain seeing your friend go through pain than if you just go through pain by yourself. But you don't, um, the, the stranger's pain doesn't affect you at all. Isn't that fascinating? There's a number of different ways they've done this study, and in the end, the results come, come out the same. But in this study, I thought it was interesting. Have you ever, um, you ever played rock band? It's that, pla- it's that like, video game with the um, plastic instruments and... And you, you, pl- you play to the, to the screen, and, and, uh, um, and you're working together to, um, to get a collaborative score. After, after these subjects tested with a stranger, they then had them play rock band for 15 minutes. Then they did the ice thing again. And you know what they found? The stranger now tested like a friend. Um, I thought it was pretty cool. Fear, busyness, keep us from, or, or keep, make us walk by. I think another thing that makes us walk by is we're overwhelmed. The enormity of the problem. There's so much to do. Where to start? You know, there's, there's so much injustice. There's so many broken relationships. There's so many people in Harrisonburg I don't know. I can't even start. Well, start with the person in the ditch in front of you. 
Start with your neighbor, the person you cross paths with. That's actually what Jesus was saying, right? I know this talk about kindness to strangers, people you don't know or don't know well, can be frightening to most of us. Um, But hear me out. Stick with me. Uncross your arms. Open your heart. and, And for a few minutes, think about what God might have you to do. It's a good friend of mine, former pastor named Jeff Gwynn. And one thing that he always said was this. Architecture always wins. Architecture always wins. I want to challenge us today to look at the architecture of our lives. Think about whether we're living our lives like the priest and the Levite or like the Muslim. I'm not talking about seeking out a homeless person every day to feed a meal to I'm not talking about solving all the problems of the people in your neighborhood. Our mind goes right there, doesn't it? Right there to the, the, the big problems. I'm talking about leaving room in your life for the stranger, for the immigrant, the, what the Bible calls the sojourner, the vulnerable. Being open to people we don't know, don't know well. People who might be lying in the ditch or have a flat tire along Route 33. The Leviticus passage that David Cooper read to us says this. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after you harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. That's an example of leaving room in your life, of building your life in a way that makes space for the stranger. So let's get practical. Let's talk about your home. If you're building a house, you should think about this when you meet with the architect. But most of us aren't building a house. Let's talk about the home we have. How do you present your home, your house, to your neighbors? Are your doors shut? Your blinds closed? You have a barricade of bicycles there in front of the the front stoop? Where's the door open? Is the entrance attractive? Do you have extra chairs on the porch? More than you need for your family. Does your house present a welcoming facade? Do you have a table bigger than you need for your family? See, when you do that, when you have more chairs at your table than you need, you are creating space. That doesn't mean you invite somebody over every week. Every month. But it's available. It's available. Um, if you have enough space, do you keep a spare room? To some extent, it's a waste of space most of the time. But it's a, it's a decision that, that we've made in our home. Now, our, our first house, we had four kids and we didn't, have, we didn't have a spare room. But we moved. We kept the kids together, the boys in one room, the girls in the, another room, for parenting reasons. But also... So we'd have space. So we'd have a spare room. Of course, this always depends on your situation, where you live. We don't live in the neighborhood. Um, But think about your situation, your home. If somebody walks by your house on the street, on the sidewalk, and you wave to each other, would that person feel welcome to stop and walk over and talk? If that's what they needed. Would you be able to invite them 
to your table if that's what they needed? Would you be willing to stop what you're doing and give them your time if that's what they needed? Now, that's a hard one for me. The architecture of my calendar. Um, I start the day with a too long list, and I hate interruptions. So each morning when I pray for my clients, I also pray for the grace and compassion it takes to welcome interruptions. The passage from Hebrews uh, that Jenny read says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. <laughs> now, I have no idea what that means, but it sounds serious. Um, and it sounds important. And it sounds like something that, that we need to be aware of. I'm not saying we need to save the whole world or all the problems in Harrisonburg. And I'm not saying you must stop everything for every interruption. Aubrey said last week that when we were talking about work, that we need to be doing our jobs well. And certainly if we welcomed every interruption, we may not get to our jobs. But what I'm saying is, be open to it. Now, like I said, my window's right on Court Square. And for years, people would come up, knock on the window, and interrupt me. And finally, about a year ago, I finally got blinds. Um, kind of funny, shortly after that, one of the guys who used to knock on the window and stand there for half hour, 45 minutes in winter, talking to me, said, Aaron, you got blinds. I was like, yeah. He's like, why'd you do that? I'm like, I, I don't know. People knocked on the window. And he's like, really? And I said, yeah. <laughs> so... But I still make it a point in my day to raise the blinds um, and to be available to those interruptions, even though I don't want to. Um, You know, the good Muslim in our story from the gospel was going somewhere. He was journeying. And he he dropped him off at the inn and he he had to keep going because he he had something to get to. But he said, I'll come back. Um, So... Think about the architecture of our calendars, our days. Leave room for the unexpected, the unplanned, the vulnerable, the stranger, the guy in the ditch. Now, some of us have personalities that seek out people in the ditch. I'm not really talking to you guys today. Most of us don't. I'm not calling on you to be a hospitality superstar. I'm not calling on you... I'm calling on me to start on the hard cases. You know, Jimmy, the homeless guy on Court Square, that when you sit down and talk to him, all I can talk about is how the people in Harrisonburg don't give money when he asks for it. Those are the hard cases. Don't start there. I'm encouraging you to look at the architecture of your life, the architecture of your heart, and take one step, just one step, from where you are right now. One step further into this than you're currently comfortable with. Reach out, first of all, to somebody you know. Somebody you're acquainted with. Not good friends with. They might be different from you. But you might know them from your neighborhood, your work, church. Somebody you're slightly uncomfortable with. Now, don't run right out, right after church and say, I'm uncomfortable with you. Would you come over to my house? Um, (laughs) What I'm talking about is availability. Is the architecture of your home, your calendar, your life, open to those in your community, those you cross paths with, or what Jesus calls your neighbor? 
This is hospitality. This is reaching outside of the people like us, the people that we don't have to be commanded to love. We hear that every week, don't we? From, from right up here. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Often in prayers of the people um, here, we're, we're asked to pray for prisoners. Jesus in Matthew 25 said, I was a prisoner and you came to visit me. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. The Hebrews passage from today said, Remember those who are in prison as though, in pris- as though you were in prison with them. I used to think these passages were about Christians who were being persecuted and locked up for it. But that's not what it's about at all. The people in prison, just down the street, several blocks from here, are also the stranger. They're vulnerable. They're the guy in the ditch. And I so appreciate the work that Christians are doing right now in Harrisonburg, like Winona, Hogan, to bring some awareness to what's happening in that building, to reach out to these people, to love these people, and bring some redemptive change at our local jail. Again, we don't need to be visiting prisoners every day. Maybe you aren't ever going to go to the jail. But which of your neighbors, your vulnerable neighbors, widows, orphans, maybe a family with a, with a dad who's in jail, the guy in the ditch, is God wanting you to open your heart, your home, your calendar, your life to this week? You see, laboring for justice might have something to do with those of us in the criminal justice system. And I think that's why Aubrey wanted me to talk today. But laboring for justice is really for all of us. Reordering reordering and fixing the brokenness, the broken relationships in our community starts when we open our hearts to loving God and loving our neighbors. In the psalm today, it said, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executed who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. The Lord will reign forever. This is God's work. This is King Jesus' work. This is King Jesus' work in Harrisonburg. Let's look at our hearts. Let's open our hearts and join him in his work. Amen.